This summer, for the first time in history, Fiddler on the Roof will be performed in Yiddish in the United States. And that performance will take place right here in New York City. The National Yiddish Theater Folks Bina is presenting the show at the Museum of Jewish Heritage starting July 4th. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Folks, Bina CEO Christopher Massamine is with me now in the studio. Christopher, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. So what's the mission of the National Yiddish Theater Folks Bina? Sure. So in 1915, the company was established as the Folks Bina, or People's Stage. And essentially, it was the first theater in the country for social change. It bridged the gaps between the immigrant population and the mainstream population that was occurring on the Lower East Side, which is where it originally was founded under. Uh, it welcomed in all sorts of diverse communities, uh, including the LGBT community and women, when women really weren't allowed to come out without a chaperone. So it really was truly the people's stage with a mission of using the um, Yiddish language as a bridge through multicultural communities. It's still very much that way today. Now, you had me at 1915, more than 100 years ago. That's right, 104 years and, uh, I guess, aging. How did it manage to stay around for so long? You know, I think it's because the shows themselves have always been resonant and authentic in their mission to kind of reflect what's going on in the socioeconomic times. Uh, when it founded, you know, most of the other shows that were going on were big spectacles or the vaudeville and things like that. This was really like a theater of, um, I, I guess I said it before, but it was a theater of change. And because of that, the authenticity has kept it around all these years. The first show, actually, that they did was Ibsen's Enemy of the People, which I guess is a big show that's going on today for uh, many political reasons, of course. But um, it was a big deviation from what was going on in the um, the Broadway and theater community. So it made it very unique and different. What types of programs do you provide today? So the Folks Bina offers a very eclectic um, variety of programs, starting from early childhood, going through... Um, uh, teen drama labs and into main stage performances, touring, uh, visiting many different uh, community centers outreach-wise, many different performance venues throughout the country and internationally, and up until um, senior citizens. So it's really a very, very diverse array of programming that we have both locally and throughout the country and throughout the world. Who's your audience? So interestingly, when I started six years ago, uh, the audience was... Uh, primarily 65 plus uh, mostly Yiddish speakers. Now, just because um, culture and language and all those things kind of trend, just like the economy, they go up and down, have high points, low points. When I stepped in, we were at a lower point uh, in the Yiddish speaking population and the theater itself. And we had to figure out what was its strengths, what was its weaknesses. We did a little bit of a SWOT analysis to figure out exactly where we are to know where we're going. What we determined was there's no real difference than what we're doing than what, let's say, opera is doing. So it's not about the language. The language is actually the strength. It's not something that can be considered a weakness because it actually holds true to what the theater was, how it was founded. And kind of using that and explaining that to people really helped increase the audience base and diversify it. So we went and we tackled the theater demographic. We tackled the opera demographic. We tackled all multicultural, multilanguage theater companies. And we realized we do have a very eclectic audience. And now I'm really happy and excited to report that today our uh, medium average is actually uh, 25 to 35 is our demographic. Wow, that's significant. Yeah, and we've grown from uh, 46% attendance to, I'm very happy to report, this season 99% paid capacity with, for the first time in my at least tenure, uh, standing room only. Wow, wow. Yeah. To what do you attribute that slump that you were going through? Sure. I, I think it just had to do a lot with um, 
a, a lot of times companies see their mission and they see their demographics and they kind of stay the line, which is good. But also as you stay the line, you have to figure out exactly where to diversify in that and what's working and not what's not working, what's trending, what's changing. And I'm a very big uh, math and statistics and forecasting guy. And I really believe it's not about what we want as um, you know, individuals of the company, but what the people want that come to the company and make the company great. So kind of feeding off of that, getting audience support, audience feedback was really kind of vital in developing the theater as to what it is today. Yiddish does seem to be experiencing a resurgence right now. Yes. Why do you think that is? So like I said, it's very cool. Um, you know, language, um, culture, all those things, just like the economy up and down. Uh, so basically, um, let, let's give an example. So let's say uh, 100 years ago, you're from Poland, I'm from Russia. I don't speak Polish, you don't speak Russian, but let's say we're Jewish. Chances are we both spoke Yiddish, which was known as the Mamalotian or kind of the mother tongue, which was the connector, which is why folks being, a, being the connector of multicultural organizations through the arts using the specific experience but universal experience of the Jewish experience is uh, relevant today. Do you speak Yiddish? Abyssal, which is a little bit. But um, a little bit goes a long way, and it's such an expressive language that we use it every day, and that's what people often forget, which goes back to why it's um, why it's in trend, why it's kind of uh, something that's very much back on the rise. I mean, bagel, if you have a bagel with schmear, that's Yiddish. You know, if you're schlepping somewhere, that's Yiddish. Everybody uses it every day and doesn't really necessarily realize that. Not only that, I mean, Yiddish has an impact, a direct impact on Broadway itself. It was kind of the genesis behind that. People don't realize that the Medici system of currency actually came from the Yiddish culture. So there's a lot that traces back to the Yiddish culture. And I say culture, not just language, because it kind of is a way of life. It's so expressive, rich, and vibrant. Um, but back to how it, how it kind of resurged. So um, we spoke that language, right, 100 years ago. Then, unfortunately, uh, World War II came. And what happened in the aftermath of World War II was there was kind of a mentality that we take everything that happened, good and the bad, and we move forward with it. Or the other mentality was we leave behind that which was in the war itself. Because of that, Yiddish was left behind in many ways, and it started to slope. And at that point, up until World War II and through World War II, in fact, in many of the ghettos, in many of the camps, actually were Yiddish performances because you can always find levity in the darkest of situations. And that's what the culture did. So after that, it declined because people weren't talking about it. Then they had children. And because they weren't talking about it, their children wanted to know. And it started to resurge again because there was an interest in this forbidden language, this you know, rich, rich, rich culture that was almost forgotten and lost. And that started to climb and climb and climb. And then it started to lose a little interest again because it was something that was had and something that was understood. And it was something that was almost like um, put upon people, you know, like here we are, you know, we, it was a culture that was lost. It's back again. You should learn it. And because if you say that to anyone, especially a teenager, you should learn this. They don't want to learn it, right? That's just kind of the innate uh, teenage experience. So it started to go down again. But what happened now that we're entering, we're in like the fourth generation, third, fourth generation, uh, people are really interested in it because it really had such an impact on the world. It still has an impact on the world. And it's kind of cool because it went into this almost, um, I guess, it, literally, it was um, put on the endangered language lists that the hipster community, because it was so out of trend, but so cool that it started to rise again. 
and it keeps climbing because there's a lot of interest. I mean, it's historic. It has to do with pop culture. It's used every day. There's no reason that it shouldn't be. And I just hope that the National Yiddish Theater and all of our outreach and our fellow uh, friends at different Yiddish, you know, institutions can really help that climb as high as we can, take it to Everest levels before it peaks and dips a little again. How do you engage people who don't speak or understand Yiddish to come into the fold to experience performance? Well, it's not even necessarily about the language. It's about the stories. At the end of the day, we're all storytellers. And what we want to do is we want to take that and use that as cultural continuity and legacy. So it's about getting people to connect with their heritage and identity through the arts. And I think that's very important. Uh, language is not a barrier with that. And of course, we also accompany super titles of English, Russian, depending on which pockets and demographics of different multicultural communities are coming to make that accessible. And we're working on other ways as well. Now, you're also working on presenting Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish yes. this summer. Now, this is a big deal. This is the first time this has been done in the United States. First time it's been done in the United States, first time in over 50 years, and was only done once before, and that was its world premiere in Israel in the 60s. So the uh, translator, uh, his name was Shraga Friedman, was a survivor of the Holocaust. Um, he was a famous, uh, very well-known actor, director, writer, and he took all of the Broadway shows and he translated them to Hebrew, and they played in Israel and had long, successful runs. However, this adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof was the only translation he did in Yiddish, and that was very near and dear to his heart. And unlike the other translations he did, it wasn't literal. It had to do with the original source material of the Shalom HaChaleim, and it had to do with the historical backdrop as well. So it became this very, very kind of robust creation of what the world of Anatevka, which is, the, of course, the town Fiddler on the Roof takes place in, would have been. And it's very, very special. So instead of having, like, if you were, if I were a rich man, it's if I were a Rothschild, instead of tradition, it's the Torah. And these slight, small changes make such a big difference and make such a full world of one of the world's most popular musicals. It gets even better. Now, what inspired Folks Bina to want to bring Fiddler here in Yiddish? Well, I'll tell you what. In 2014, we had um, the official 50th anniversary of Fiddler on the Roof. And what we did is we took every... Um, Every cast that we could, from the movie to the original Broadway production to all the Broadway productions and the touring companies, and we put them together. It was the largest gathering of the cast of Fiddler on the Roof around the world. And it was so exciting. We, um, we did the concert version of this. And after, I remember sitting with my uh, predecessor, Brian Wasserman, and my partner at the Folks Bina, Zalman Malatek, and the three of us were sitting and saying, you know, this is such, such a rich, important musical obviously the most well-known Jewish musical in the world, if not one of the most well-known musicals in the world, period. Gosh, what if we had a Yiddish language adaptation of this? And we kind of sat there disheartened because there was a version in the 60s, this version, of course, that was kind of almost lost to time. And then what happened about a year and a half ago, a friend of the folks, Bina, said, you know, we know the person, or the daughter, rather, of the person who did this translation. And Zalman Malatek, artistic director, and myself kind of just looked at each other. We said, we need to do this. We weren't going to wait a second longer. So we contacted uh, Yael Friedman, who's the daughter of Shraga Friedman. And we said, we want to bring your father's life or work to life on the stage in the United States. 
And why this is important, too, is as wonderful of a run as it was in Israel, it happened in Israel during a time of anti-Yiddish sentiment just because of the trending. Like I said, Yiddish going up and down. It was something left behind. And British, yeah, Israel was founded on religious auspices, so it was Hebrew, not Yiddish. And so um, Shraga never really got to see the run that he so deserved to see. So this is a homecoming for Fiddler. It's a homecoming for Shraga. And it's a homecoming for our director, who so happens to be Oscar and Tony Award winner and just wonderful human being, Joel Gray. How did you score Joel Gray for this? So in 2013, uh, Joel Gray was a recipient of one of our awards at our gala. And we've worked with him um, here and there, back and forth, throughout many years. So... um, Salman and I, when we decided we wanted to do this and we're going to do this, we're going through the list of directors who would want to uh, take the helm of this. On the top of that list was Joel. We didn't need to call Joel because the day after we announced it in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, Joel called us. And he called us based on a friend of the folks, Bina, who's Hal Prince, who was the original producer of Fiddler on the Roof, huh. the roof who called Joel and said, Joel, you should do this. And Joel said, OK. And he called us. And it's been... Uh, it's been, um, I guess we can say, beshert, which is another Yiddish word, which is kind of like predestined ever since, because Joel's father, of course, was Mickey Katz of the Yiddish stage, who was one of the biggest joke men and song men of the stage. So it's a homecoming for Joel, too. Now, Joel himself has a very impressive resume, if you will. For those not familiar with his work, why don't you tell us more about him? Sure. So Joel, uh, wow. Um, Joel is, I guess, one of the um, original, we can call him song and dance men of our time. He um, went cabaret. He uh, originated the role of the MC, which I believe was the first role in history to win the Tony Award and the Oscar at the same time. He's had an eclectic role, uh, roles on stage and screen. He originated the role of the Wizard of Oz and Wicked. He was just recently in Anything Goes. He's a director. He's a Tony-nominated director for his work on The Normal Heart on Broadway with George C. Wolfe. So Joel has kind of done it all. He's a very well, uh, he's an author. He's a photographer. He, um, he sets his mind to it and he does it. Who else is involved in the production? Oh my gosh, it's it's so exciting. We have um, an incredible creative team. So um, our choreographer, Stash Karmic, um, is one of the leading choreographers of Fiddler on the Roof. He's kind of one of the, um, I guess you can call it like the descendants of the Robbins choreography. Uh, it's a pleasure to work with. We have Beowulf Borat uh, designing the set, who did come from away, of course. Uh, Anne Hold Ward is on costumes, who did Beauty and the Beast. It's an incredible all-star team, and it will be an incredible cast as well that we'll be announcing this coming week. I was going to say, did you already hold auditions? We did, which is very exciting. We saw over a thousand people and uh, incredible I've never seen this kind of um, talent come out for this kind of um, production meaning foreign language production but it goes to show again that the language isn't really a barrier it's part of the strength and that's something special that happens with our cast in general is they start with very little leadway time to learn the language. Um, if it's a workshop, it's a week they have if it's a shorter production two weeks for fiddler they'll have a month however um, they really get involved with um, the dynamics of it because we teach it in a fun way and we make sure that they understand, they connect to it. And what ends up happening is the cast ends up end up becoming another Yiddish word, mishpoka, which are family. And we have casts from three years ago connecting with casts today. They come back to things. Many of them take Yiddish courses after because we connect people. And that's the important thing about what we do is the people stage. It's not just our stage. It's their stage, too. Now, what stage will Fiddler be gracing here in New York City? So Fiddler on the Roof 
fittingly, will be at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, which is our um, our partner in crime for the last couple of years. We've been in a trial merger, which has been lovely to have a, finally a residence. We've been wandering up until three years ago, so we finally have a permanent residence in the Museum of Jewish Heritage, which just so happens to be across from the Statue of Liberty in Battery Park City. So I couldn't think of a more fitting venue for it to be. Now, you said you've been with Folksbina for six years now, right? That's correct. What brought you to Folksbina? Ah, so that's a very interesting story. So... Um, I had um, an interesting background. If, can I start a little bit before folks? Go ahead. All right. So I was a childhood actor. Uh, I was a little Chip in Beauty and the Beast, a little Tommy and Tommy, a little Gavroche in Les Miserables. And uh, I liked that kind of life, and it was fun. And I guess you can say in many ways I grew up backstage. As I got a little bit older, I thought maybe um, not so much on the talent end, but I was interested in learning the dynamics of how to put a show together because my first show was Oliver at the New Jersey State Theater. And I remember that curtain opening and the set coming out. And I said, wow, what in the world is this? And I knew at that moment it wasn't necessarily acting that I was going to do, but just being part of it. So fast forward, I'm 18 years old and I'm my um, senior class president. And these were days where you put your um, the money that you've raised inside of um, water jugs and not the bank, like uh, practical people. And so we got robbed. And it was my responsibility to make sure that we did something about it. At that time, I had been apprenticing with a regional theater called the Brook Arts Center and in company management, which is kind of a little bit of everything uh, from accounting to figuring out uh, how to deal with cast members to contracts and things like that. Um, and I went to the executive director and I said, this is what happened. And I'd like to put in a show. And he said, what show? And I said, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And this is critical because the Brook Arts Center was actually the original midnight showing Rocky Horror before it came to the East Village. And it was a theater before it became a performing arts venue. It hadn't been done since. And this was a landmark year. And I believe it was the year after it was revived on Broadway uh, with Jew Jamson and Jordan Roth. And... Um, I remember saying, yeah, I can do this. And I had to speak with Samuel French. And I think that's where I met Jordan, who's been, uh, I've been lucky to have as a collaborator, mentor since then. And um, it was a very uphill battle for me, uh, not having worked with any of the unions and anything, but I came out the other side much stronger. And our senior class never had to raise another cent again. Hmm. So um, that's where I got started in theater. Then I went to college in New York University, and I was going in for biochemical engineering, which of course disappeared. As There's a shift. Well, that was it. <laughs> you know, that was, uh, this was the changing point for me. When I produced that show, when I produced Rocky Horror, I said, okay, you know, I always ask why. The question is why? And because I want to. And I want to be a producer. I want to be involved with this. So I went to dramatic literature. And the first thing I learned in dramatic literature in the American stage was Yiddish theater. Hmm. So fast forward a couple of years, I'm in uh, general management, I'm producing, I'm doing things like that, I've shifted, I've gone to advertising, I've done some campaigns, I actually did a lot of uh, very fun campaigns, like the Old Spice, um, basically every Old Spice commercial you see now generated from my idea that we have to be silly about the products that we use. I worked on a campaign called the in um, Intel's Museum of Me, which was the precursor of Ancestry.com. Huh. I did all the Resident Evils. I did a lot of the Wolfensteins. So I did a lot of advertising. I went back into production with uh, shows like Jersey Shore and Boardwalk Empire as a supervising producer. And then finally, I decided, okay, I'm going to open up my own marketing consultant firm. Two months before three people from the National Yiddish Theater asked me to come, one of which is a longstanding friend who was a friend for about eight years at the time, and now our general manager, Jamie Beth Margolis. I said, 
all right, I'll check out this company. So I met with my predecessor. We talked about producing, marketing, because they needed a client. They, well, they needed a marketing consultant, and I didn't need a client, but I said, okay. And I spoke with her for about an hour, and she said, do you have any questions? And I said, yeah, because our old offices had no signage or anything. I said, what company is this? <laughs> And that's when she said the National Yiddish Theater. My mind immediately went back to transferring out of biochemical engineering into dramatic literature. In that moment, we learned about the Yiddish Theater. And I've been there ever since. So I started off as a marketing consultant. I closed down my firm within two months to make this happen full time. Became the GM, producing director, executive producer, COO, and now uh, the CEO for the last about two years now. I know you were just a kid when you were performing on stage, but do you ever miss it? A little bit. I can't say I don't, but... um, I like supporting the the show in general and seeing it put together. I like being the the proud backstage mama this time, and uh, that excites me. It excites me to see them get the standing ovation. It excites me to see them be recognized for the work they put on. So what's beyond Fiddler for folks, Bina? Oh, my gosh. The sky's the limit. So we have planned our next almost three seasons. Now, obviously, I can't talk too much about that because those are still in the works, and obviously, they'll be launched. But um, like I said, folks, Bina, when I started, means people stage. But it's not just about a physical stage. I mean, today, it's about seeing where things are trending, where technology is going. So we're going beyond that possible web series that we're looking at, taking our social media and using that to harness that for good. We're already having uh, taxi television and television little spots that are going on. We're creating something very special that has to do with augmented reality that I can't too t- uh, talk too much about, but it's uh, it's everyone's stage. Chris, if there anything that we didn't talk about that you'd want to add? Well, just if, uh, if anyone's around town this summer, Fiddler on the Roof starts July 4th. Independence Day, fittingly, runs through the 26th of August at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. We'd love to see you all there. And your website? www.nytf.org. Christopher, thanks so much. Thank you. Christopher Massamine is the CEO of the National Yiddish Theater Folksbina. If you want to learn Yiddish, our next guest is your go-to guy. Kolya Buradulin is director of Yiddish programming for the Workman's Circle. Kolya joins me now in the studio. Kolya, thanks so much for coming in. It's my pleasure, really. So what is the Workman's Circle? Uh, the Workman's Circle is a progressive Jewish organization uh, founded... Uh, in early 1900s wow. by uh, Jews, mostly immigrants from Eastern Europe. So it's really rooted in socialism, uh, ideas of uh, social justice, and uh, as they say, a better and for all. So a better and more beautiful word for everybody. Now you teach Yiddish for the Workmen's Circle. I do. How and long love- have you been doing that now? Oh. Too long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually started, uh, I came here as a graduate student, Columbia University Yiddish program, 1992, and then 1993 already started to teach kids at the Workman Circle, and 94 also adults. Now you taught yourself Yiddish, do I have that right? Yes, uh, and it's also, it was a coincidence, uh, thanks to Perestroika, Gorbachev, I don't know what. It was a pure coincidence. If somebody would tell me when I was 25 that I will be not only teaching, learning Yiddish, I would laugh at his or her face. But um, um, uh, with Perestroika, with this new renewal of uh, Jewish, and not only Jewish, ethnical culture in the former Soviet Union, 
I was approached by the dean of the newly established uh, teacher's college in Birabidjan, the capital city of still existing Jewish autonomous region where I grew up. So this dean offered me a job uh, to be a Yiddish language instructor, although I didn't know any Yiddish. But his argument was that you know German and you know English, you are Jewish. Pick up a book and start teach yourself. So, which I did. And how long uh, did it take you? Uh, it took me. I, I don't know. I studied in 1988, and then two months later, I had a chutzpah. This is a word which is ingrained in American English. Uh, I had a chutzpah to teach both kids and adults. So basically, I was two steps ahead. But this also this helped, and also I was a language teacher. I knew how to teach uh, foreign language, which was by that time foreign to almost everybody who I taught. So, why is the Yiddish language such an important part of the workman's circle? It's a history. It's our roots. It's our heritage, which is ingrained in the. the um, Story, history, and I think future of this organization, which makes it unique. Uh, most of the Jews who founded uh, the Walkman Circle uh, were Yiddish speakers, and I think it's very important to continue to cherish uh, the values with which we started. What can you tell me about the history of the Yiddish language? Uh, <laughs> are you kidding? So it's it's an amazing history. It's a, a history of one thousand year young language, uh, which survived so many persecutions, so many injustices, so many troubles, tzores, as they say in Yiddish. Yet uh, survived. Yet. Uh, thriving in a way of new era, new technology, which really gives it a new breath. I understand there is a fair amount of debate over the origins of the Yiddish language. Are you familiar with that debate? I, I'm familiar. I don't want to go there. It definitely has its roots in... Um, um, in, East, in in Western Europe, around Rhine area, Germany. But then it went uh, eastward, and the flourishing, really the blossoming of the language took place in Eastern Europe, where amazing, breathtaking literature and art was created. It still carries on, still ignites and inspires in so many different ways. It's a secular language. Uh, yes and no. It's a secular. It's no. It's a language uh, where you can find so many references to our religious sources, to Tanakh and to Talmud. And if you are not familiar with these sources, you are not getting much of this literature. Uh, this is what makes it so beautiful because there are so many references to our outstanding past outstanding traditions, uh, our celebrations. Give Without me some examples no, of that. Give me some examples of those connections. Uh, Paris, one of the greatest Yiddish uh, writers of the uh, 19th, beginning of 20th century, used so much uh, uh, parables, references to stories which he took from Tanakh and Talmud and Gemara. And 
but they're so humane. And when you read it and you get also, you don't need to get absolutely everything from the tradition, but it really draws you. It makes you want to learn more, to learn more about your past, about your, uh, about your identity. Who is speaking Yiddish today, mostly? Mostly, of course, and it's not a secret. Uh, you know, it's Hasidic community who don't care about uh, this uh, phenomena I'm talking so passionately about, uh, like Yiddish literature and history and scholarship and art. Uh, they don't care. Again, yes and no, because uh, now we know for the fact that thousands of them uh, are reading um, uh, Yiddish Forwards, which is a secular Yiddish newspaper, uh, thousands, not hundreds, thousands, every single day. The Jewish Forward, yeah. The Jewish, mm-hmm. the Jewish Forward, the Yiddish Forward mm-hmm. in particular, because there is an English Forward and there is Yiddish Forward. Okay. Uh, so this uh, new technology really gives access to anybody who wants to learn and to polish and to be around. So where in New York City can Yiddish be heard most? I mean, uh, there are places, not too many. Uh, One of them is uh, our um, own workman circle, uh, which has, I think, uh, the largest uh, Yiddish language program uh, in the country, and I'm very proud of it. Uh, Another thing about our uh, Yiddish language program, it's just kind of a year-round. It's not only like two semesters, fall and spring. It's also in the summer we have a beautiful program called A Trip to Yiddishland. It's a very friendly, Hamish immersion into language through language, literature, and arts. How do I say thank you in Yiddish? Oh, it's also it's a beautiful question because Yiddish has three ways. It has much more, but just three ways. There is a shame dank, a beautiful thank you which you don't say in English, a beautiful thank you. But in Yiddish, it's almost a custom. It's not a dank. A dank is just thank you. But you always say a shenem dank, which is a beautiful thank you, or a groisen dank, which is a huge thank you, or a hartzikem dank, from the bottom of my heart. Well, a groisen dank. Did I get that right? Yeah, you got that right. You need to study Yiddish. Thank Have you a very so good much. Year. <laughs> thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Kolya Boradulin is Director of Yiddish Programming for the Workman's Circle. More info at circle.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Thank you so much for listening.